But uh, if you haven't been with us, we have been in the book of John for a number of weeks now. This is our 12th week, actually. So if you want to turn with me to John chapter 12, if you have a Bible there. If not, I'll read it so you can just listen. Um, But John chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 12 and go through verse 19 today. And this is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, just, you know, surrounding Passover, just before Passover. And it says this, starting John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the, for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, right? Now, let me stop right there and just say, Hosanna means save or save now. It's a very important point, all right? So they're screaming, save or save now, right? And then it continues. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Blessed is the king of Israel, right? Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. And as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Now, I want you to think, just, just a second, I want you guys to think about all the sermons we've heard through John and what Jesus has said to them leading up to this, right? Um, and, and listen to verses 16, uh, just listen to verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, in other words, after he went to the cross and he rose from the grave, Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So he's told them all this and told them all this, and they haven't gotten it yet, right? Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So all these people that had been around when he had raised Lazarus from the dead are telling everybody about Jesus, and people are coming to him in in droves, right? Finally, verse 19, it says, so the Pharisees, these poor guys, man. So for the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out after it. Now, Jesus paints for us. Uh, or John paints for us a portrait of Jesus as king. And I just want to stop here for a minute and pray for us as we, we get into the word. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for everybody logged in right now and everybody that's going to watch this at a later time. And we pray that your your spirit and your word would go out this morning to everybody, uh, myself included, that we would be brought closer to you, that if there's somebody out there that needs freedom in their life, that needs to find you for the first time, that they would and that they would give them their lives to you. We pray for that. We want that. We want to see that more and more people are assimilated and brought into your kingdom of peace and under your lordship and under your kingship because we know that you are a benevolent, good, loving king who uh, takes care of his children and walks with us well. We just thank you for that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So John paints for us a a portrait of Jesus as king, and this is his inauguration ceremony that we just read there. And they're shouting, you got to understand this, they're shouting, save or save us, right? Save us, King Jesus. That's what they're shouting, right? And so 
if you go to other passages like Matthew 21.10, it says that when Jesus entered the city, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, right? They're joyous, they're yelling, they're waving palm branches, they're laying down their cloaks on the road before Jesus on this donkey, and it's Passover. They're all there for Passover. And Jesus has healed people up to this point, fed thousands with leftovers from somebody's lunch bag, right? He's challenged the leadership, he's honored women, he's doted on kids, he's driven out demons, right? He's, he's brought hope, you know, to people, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And so everybody's thinking he must be the Messiah. He must be that person that's been prophesied for, you know, eons before this, that he's, he's come, he's the Messiah. So they wave palm fronds and they shout and they think he's going to overthrow Rome. That's their expectation, that he'll come and he'll overthrow Rome, right? So they're sitting there thinking, show some respect, genuflect, get down on one knee, you know, for your King Jesus, the Messiah. And it's a great day for Israel. It really is. It's a great day for Israel. So Jerusalem's flooded with the faithful, right? And they they imagine, if you can, in, in your minds, I imagine the nationalistic sort of pride rounding that bend of Mount Olives. You're up on this mountain, you're around the bend, and you look down at the city and you see the temple shining in the distance, and there's people all over the road walking, and you, they're all gathered for the Passover, and you would be very proud to be Jewish that day. But for us right now, what's Passover? right? What's Passover? You may or may not know anything about it. I don't know. But it's outlined in in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, when the Israelites enslaved in Egypt were called by God to sacrifice a lamb and paint the doorposts of their house, of their homes, with its blood. Sounds like a really strange practice. But that night, you know, they paint the doorposts of, the, of their homes with the blood of this lamb, the sacrificial lamb. And that night, God passed through Egypt, and he struck down every firstborn of person and animal, bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And it's the last of the plagues which broke Pharaoh's grip, causing him to release the Israelites from their slavery. And and we see that story in Exodus 12 as a battle of lordship or a battle of kingship between God and Pharaoh or God and the and the uh the gods of Egypt. And this is where God claimed, "I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt." So the blood of those lambs, those sacrificial lambs, both saved them, saved their lives, but also set them free from oppression. That's a really interesting fact. So every year, from then, every year, uh, Jesus made this trek in his life commemorating Passover, which foreshadowed actually his own coming sacrifice. But this year is different. This was his last. Everything's changing, right? The final Passover lamb, Jesus, had come, right? King Jesus, who sacrifices himself for his people. That's exciting. Luke 19 tells us that as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he sent uh, two of his disciples ahead of himself to get a donkey for him to ride on, even explaining where they, exactly where they would find it, right? And Jesus chose to ride a donkey that day, which is a very... Uh, important fact, 
Because a horse would have been fitting for a conquering king to ride into a city, right? But a donkey, a king coming in on a donkey symbolized his coming in peace. So Christ is king coming in peace. And so we realize by these things that he is orchestrating this plan. He's pulling the strings. He's made arrangements for this donkey, a symbol of a king coming in peace, and he rides straight into Jerusalem, right? And he's coming from Jericho about 19 miles away where he stayed over in Bethany and um, just outside of Jerusalem uh, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and that's when he sends for this donkey. And in Luke 19, uh, chapter 19, verses 35 through 37, it says, they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he went along and people spread their cloaks on the road in front of them for him to walk over, right? When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, looking down at the city, right? The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, everything that he had done, right? And so you got to understand that this is more royal imagery, kingly imagery. They're cutting branches. They're laying them on the road along with their cloaks, their clothing. And these are practices that are only reserved for a king. And so we see it when Jehu was anointed king of Israel in 2 Kings 9. It's another uh, outline of this whole kind of practice, right? But Jesus, I want to say, by the way, that Jesus knew from what he's told us before, all those, those other sermons leading up to chapter 12 here today, Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into, didn't he? He, he had been very clear with everybody about who he was and what would happen to him in Jerusalem during Passover. He knew what he was walking into. In John chapter 12, before this, it records how Mary, in worship of him, poured perfume on his feet, which cost a whole year's wage, and then she wiped it with her hair, right? (laughs) And Judas Iscariot gets all upset at that moment, right? He's like, you know, why are you wasting all that money? And Jesus explains that she needed to do this in preparation for his burial. Again, foreshadowing his death just days away. But in the Synoptic Gospels, he pulled no punches. If you remember, he claimed that he must go to Jerusalem, he must be handed over, and he must be crucified again or, or, and, and, and rise again, right? Um, so I want you for a moment, just in your living room there or wherever you are, shut your eyes. Just close your eyes, you know, and imagine yourself on the road with all the palm fronds and the clothing laid out before you, uh, or before the, uh, Jesus on the road before him. And he's plodding down that road on a donkey, right? And as he approaches, he looks at you. Just imagine yourself on that road. And he looks straight at you for a moment. And everybody's screaming, Hosanna, save now, save now, King. King Jesus, save us now, right? And you're mesmerized. And he looks right through you with a mixture of both love and sadness because he's conflicted. He knows where he's going. He's, he's willing to go to sacrifice for you. But he's also saddened at all those people who seem so joyous right now, but in a day or so will turn around and scream, crucify him. So focus on Jesus for a moment. Let all those shouts fade to the background. Imagine yourself there. He knows you, everything you feel and think and do. 
He knows your heart. He knows your private moments. He knows your pride and fears and failures and accomplishments, none of which matters at this moment. As he goes to the cross for you, your willing sacrificial lamb. And then that moment is broken by the Pharisees yelling from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're all mad. The Pharisees who have plotted at this point to kill Jesus and also to kill Lazarus as well because people are following Jesus in droves due to what he said and done, including his raising Lazarus from the dead. So if Lazarus is dead, they can say, ah, he never raised him from the dead, but he did. And they're scared that the Roman authorities will react since everybody's treating Jesus as their king, which is, by the way, a direct challenge to Rome. So they actually plot murder, right? Now cut back to Jesus for a moment. You know, he looks at you with a faint smile and then up to the Pharisees. And with a loud laugh, I imagine he did this with a loud laugh. He says, I tell you, if, if, if they keep quiet, the stones themselves will cry out. And at that moment, it's, that's the moment that you realize this is the Messiah. This is your king. This is your God. And if he's your God, he's your king, then you must follow him wherever he goes. But then he stops. You know, he's at, he's at the top of the Mount of Olives. He stops and he's looking down over the city and he starts to weep, looking out over Jerusalem. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when, you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And what he's alluding to there is the future destruction of the temple in uh, 70 AD. And you can actually go back in history and read Josephus, an old uh, historian, a Jewish historian, who wrote about that, that destruction of the temple and how horrible it was. And he weeps for his people. Jesus sits here and he looks over the city and he weeps for his people since at that moment he knows, despite all the celebration going around, on around him, he knows that they don't really understand. He's the God King coming in peace, ushering in his kingdom of peace right now. And his kingdom is about power under, not power over, which is not what they really expect. Now, uh, He's not there to play politics. They want him to play politics, but he's not there to play politics. He's there to change hearts, and changed hearts actually change the world. Jesus, God made flesh, but they don't fully realize that right now. And maybe at that moment, you wouldn't really understand where he's headed yourself if you were standing there that day, but you do now, right? In hindsight, we do know the story. He's going to the cross, and he knows it. And in Luke, just before this, he tells the parable of a man who became king against the will of his subjects. And it sounds very familiar in light of what will happen or what will transpire in the next few days, right? These people would shout, Hosanna, our king, today, but would turn and scream, crucify him the next. And they wanted a political conqueror. That's what they wanted. They wanted a political, militaristic conqueror. Their joy from on this day, where they're screaming all this good stuff, won't last. 
because Jesus will refuse. He will refuse to play that role. He won't be that militaristic conqueror. He's not here to take political sides. He's here to take over the world one heart at a time as the true king of all creation. Now, I want to say that I I think he knew how hard it is to follow him. And we couldn't do it without his grace and without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I just don't think we could. He knew how hard it is to follow. His disciples asked him if he, if, if they could be first in the kingdom of God. And he responded, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Obviously they couldn't. He was the only sinless human being who could go to the cross for all of mankind. They couldn't do that, right? He said to John's disciples when they came to ask him, you know, if, if he's the one or should they expect another, he said to them, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In his first sermon, he uh, proclaimed anointing to preach good news to the poor. The Beatitudes start with blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, and as he took his ministry out into the streets, many of those people followed him. For the rich and the educated, the message was quite difficult. They didn't, they, they had a lot more to lose, right? The rich young ruler goes away because he's sad because of his great wealth. The, the Pharisees, we've seen their pride of intellect has blinded them to the truth. But for the poor and the oppressed, his message actually frees. And they flooded the kingdom since the gospel values them and raises them up and enriches them and brings hope and peace to them as we should as believers as well. But here's a danger in our modern day. Here's the danger. The danger today is to misinterpret due to the popular temptation to preach a gospel of socioeconomic exclusion born largely out of philosophies like critical theory and intersectionality. You may, you may not know what either one of those things are, but I'm going to explain it. First of all, critical theory says that people can be divided into two groups, those with power and those without power. And it also says that those with power always oppress the powerless, which isn't always true. We know that. Not all people in power are evil oppressors. That's just not true. The categories of oppressed and oppressor are based on group identities, right? Such as race and gender and religion, sexual orientation, income. And, you know, the list seems to go on and keep growing these days, right? And you can actually be an oppressor in one category and an oppressed in another category due to your differing identities in your life, which is called intersectionality. For instance, two white men these days are often seen as oppressors, right? But if one of those guys is gay, if he's homosexual, he's a little better off than the other guy since he's in an oppressed category as a homosexual, right? So intersectionality seeks to measure levels of power and oppression in our society. The more oppressed you are, the more moral authority you have according to critical theory. Now, there are three major conflicts that between Christianity and critical theory. Firstly, critical theory claims that our value lies in these various identities. Christianity claims 
that our value comes from being created in the image of God. All of us. Everybody. Right? Secondly, critical theory pits people against one another. Whereas Christianity says God created us all equal. That we're all equally valuable. That we're all equally guilty of our sin. And and we're all equally able to find grace and mercy in Christ. The Bible defines sin as anything which violates God's design for humankind, including oppression of others, right? But critical theory only defines sin as the oppression of others, right? So therefore, you'll find that violence and jealousy and theft and anger and rage and things like that from the oppressed side in our society right now are, you know, they might not be totally condoned, but they are considered excusable reactions to the oppressor. And this is because critical theory sees only oppression as sinful and the oppressed are always innocent, no matter what. And thirdly, there's a, the, the third difference is that the solution for salvation is wrong as well in critical theory. Critical theory says that salvation is only found through social liberation achieved through activism. And we have a lot of activ- activism going on these days. Whereas the Bible says that all of us, every single person on the, on the planet is guilty of sin. And the only way we can find salvation is through the, the cross of Jesus Christ through his atoning sacrifice. So we can't interpret that Jesus' kingdom was reserved only for the poor and oppressed. David, Moses, Abraham, Nicodemus, and Paul were all living proof of this. They were wealthy, powerful, and educated people who were also in need of the gospel and equally welcome in God's kingdom. So we don't shun anybody. Likewise, people such as the Samaritan woman at the well one that we might consider to be an oppressed category, are equally also culpable for their sin and also able and welcomed in by the grace of Jesus. Amen to that. Everyone equal according to the gospel. That's a beautiful thing. So here's the question. Are we following Christ or are we making him, you know, following Christ as our king, or are we making him to conform to our social theories? His concern must be our concern. Primarily, that is that God is glorified as people are saved from their sin and from death through Jesus' sacrifice as symbolized in the Passover. And the effects of one coming into his kingdom is to take on the heart of God which values all of life, including the poor and the oppressed and everybody else in between. So we seek God's glory through God's mission. In other words, we're reconciling people with the Father through Jesus' Passover sacrifice. We're telling that story over and over again, ushering in his kingdom of peace and true freedom, and the effects of, of, of which uh, uh, of, of such changed hearts our care and and betterment of everyone around us, right? As we take on God's heart, we become better people. As our creator, God, values life, Christians also value life. So does our Jesus, our Jesus, right, that, that we proclaim, simply discuss politics and presidents and play favorites? Or, you know, are we pouring him into the mold of self 
as the Jews were trying to do that day to make him into a political conqueror, do we also want a Christian conqueror these days, be he conservative or progressive, either side? Will we shout Hosanna today and crucify him tomorrow when he doesn't live up to our expectations? Right? It's hard to follow King Jesus. It is. It really is. You know, he goes to the cross, loving, serving, and suffering for people, right? Even his enemies. And he said, to find life, I have to lose life, right? Jesus cares only for what the Father desires, which is very different than our daily concerns usually. Philippians says that my attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who became obedient even to death on the cross. So I too should be willing to sacrifice that far. His words ring loudly in my ears all the time. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Am I willing to follow through with Jesus all the way to the cross myself? To sacrifice all my desires, to sacrifice my will to the will of God and all that kind of stuff. So today... To all of you out there, today is a challenge to follow your king and not some facsimile thereof. So don't be confused. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be equal in my attack, <laughs> right? You know, sometimes we worry more about being right than in following Jesus in right practice. Sound doctrine and theology are all important. You've all heard me champion that quite often, and I believe in it. That I, I believe that we have to know truth very well. But when right thinking becomes only intellectual and an excuse, failing to move us towards love and sacrifice and the desire for others to know Jesus, we are not really following him. Right thinking should lead to gratitude expressed in right action towards others. And right action always begins with a desire for others to know him. Bolstered also by a heart of love and freedom for all and practical, caring, loving actions. And justice, things like justice. Our king died for those very people who would scream crucify him the next day. It's about Jesus' lordship. It's about Jesus' kingship. It's not about politics, and it's not about faulty social theories. Conservative and progressive alike have sat and cast aspersions on each other from ivory towers, legislating our, our morality, you know, our, our versions of morality, often without even engaging in real need. We've all met the conservative who votes pro-life, but won't ever, you know, take in a teenage mother and help her raise her child. Or the progressive who will march on City Hall for civil rights, but never walk the streets of West Philly. Some of, the, some of our morality may be biblically correct, but some isn't, and it's not born out of Scripture. But even right thinking also doesn't always translate to right attitudes either. And that also misses the mark. Some exchange real practical love and truth for votes and activism. And it never works. None of that ever works. It only sows more hatred and more division. Jesus is made to be a political figure in those models. And we preach in the extremes, unrooted in Scripture on one side and unreflective of God's heart on the other. To claim Jesus as king, 
We desire to be like the real true Jesus, right? Willing to go to the cross as he did for others, calling people to repentance and salvation in him and higher into holiness and purity as found in his word since his moral directives are always life-giving for everybody, for all humanity. In some Christian circles, it's considered suspect to, concern, our, to uh, concern ourselves too greatly with certain social issues, except in the voting booth, right? Perhaps since issues have been made to be such polarizing political hot buttons these days. You know, it is nothing less than satanic craftiness to pervert good causes, forcing us to take sides in order to be active in them to be required to hate one group over here in order to do good for another group over on this side. We live under Christ's lordship. We are Christians living under Christ's lordship, called to loving truth and action as a result of that. Gratitude for his grace leads to good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 great passage to understand, which always, you know, good works always begin with sharing his gospel with somebody, sharing the good news of Jesus. He said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And remember, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is also our great commission call to go and make the disciples of all nations until he returns in the end. And we welcome the end, not to, not because we're some morbid crowd of people, but we do welcome the end because we believe it is eternal life. It is the final establishment of God's peace, God's justice, God's love, where true freedom is actually experienced. 6-8 has shown itself to speak truth and love practically over the years. I really do believe that. We're, we don't do it perfectly, but we try, right? Our message isn't one of social activism. Conversely, it's about the kingship or the lordship of Jesus reflecting his heart of love in peace and true freedom for all people around us. Activism is the humanistic endeavor which only polarizes, destroys unity, and distances us from our true call to see people know Jesus. It's about power and defeat. It's not about love and sacrifice, like the gospel is. Likewise, Christian uh, intellectualism, without you know, sort of practical action, is just plain indifference, isn't it? Kingdoms are ruled by kings. And kings always want to be followed. Kings are followed, right? Some truth often resides on both sides of issues. But Jesus is often found in the middle where dogmatic truth actually takes on the heart of God. He is king. Jesus is king. It's a Jesus thing. It's not a political thing. Worldly governments are inherently governed by force. They're not governed by grace. They can't be. They have to keep control. Kingdom life is us coming under Christ's lordship with me and my church willing to sacrifice for others, rich, poor, and everybody in between, as our king does while we live under the tension of a worldly kingdom, which we always do. Jesus transcends politics, and he beckons us beyond or deeper away from culture, beyond culture. 
It's not that he doesn't inform my politics, but they are not the central place in which we act. Because coercion can only restrain outward behavior. It can never change hearts. Now, I do believe that sometimes restraining behavior is a good thing for people. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But it can't change a heart. But Jesus can. The gospel of Christ can. And unlike Islam, we're not called to go set up a theocracy, progressive or a conservative, right? It's a false hope for us to legislate morality in a pluralist, pluralistic society and have it all work out. People don't react well to being forced to do what I think is right. Right actions have to be born out of right hearts, not coercion. And the temptation for us as Christians today to fall in one camp or the other to control people is overwhelming. And it's destroying the church. It's ripping it apart. Now, I don't think the church can be destroyed. I think God is in control of it. But I think some people will fall away because of these arguments. So go vote your conscience as informed by King Jesus. But, But pursue him above all and don't buy into the lies the untruths. Let's not make idols of our socio-political processes or ideologies where law replaces grace again and we forfeit the authority of King Jesus in our lives. Unity under him, not polarization into political camps. Each of us exploring scripture together as a community to find true conviction of the scriptures, showing, you know, allowing belief and value to be born of God's word and, and, and following Jesus to love our neighbor in both word and deed really well. You know, Jesus stares at us from the back of that donkey in this passage. Knowing our loneliness and our pain and how unworthy and hardened we feel. And what we've done and said and felt and think, none of which matters when you see his eyes. He goes to the cross. He pays the price for our innate sinfulness and hardness. So recognize the time of God's coming right now because the kingdom has come right now. Maybe some of you have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would ask you, as soon as this ends, to get on your knees and just pray a prayer of faith. Say, Jesus, come into my heart. I want you to govern my life. I want to be one of your subjects of your kingdom. Right? Accept grace, be reconciled, either for the very first time or in recommitting your life to him. Maybe you've lived really happy that you got a savior, but you really don't want a Lord. You don't want him to tell you what to do. Maybe you need to change that. He's listening, and he's listening with open arms. So shout right now, shout, Hosanna, save me, right? Follow your king allowing the gratitude of his grace to move us to share him with other people, bringing the kingdom of peace and freedom to all people. He promises life, both eternal and abundant. So let's live for God's glory and God's mission. Amen to that. Because we can't have him and leave his teaching aside. We can't have Jesus and also craft him into our own image, what, he, what we want him to be. Jesus himself asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do do as I say? Those are hard words. (laughs) Hard, hard words. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for your truth. I thank you 
for the call upward. I thank you for your grace, which saves us, your mercy, which allows us into your kingdom. And I thank you that you are forming and shaping us even now, making us better people, more caring people, more loving people, more honoring people. Father God, I just pray that you would do that right now in the hearts that are listening to this today, myself included, that we would understand you better, come closer to you, give our lives to you at 110%, that we would reserve nothing. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your love. We thank you for all of this. We thank you for this story. We thank you for a God that is so full of passion and love for his people, so willing to redeem us back that you would go to the cross and you went there understanding exactly what you were walking into. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're gonna leave this live for a few minutes. If you guys wanna chat on there, you can do that. Um, and uh, maybe five minutes or so, we'll leave it live. And make sure you're, you're chatting to all panelists or all panelists and attendees, not just the panelists. Um, so everybody can see what you're saying. Remember, if you need prayer, prayer at 68.org, email Rachel, and she will get that uh, going for you. And she might even set up a group of people, if you'd like that, to pray over you through a Zoom call or something like that. But let me just say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Love you guys. Miss being with you. Miss giving you guys hugs, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that soon. Amen. Have a great day.